Google Cloud was started with a vision of providing Google infrastructure to the masses. In 2008, it was not obvious that Google should become a cloud provider. Amazon Web Services was finding success among startups who needed on-demand infrastructure, but the lucrative traditional enterprise market was not yet ready to buy cloud resources. Was the cloud provider market big enough? Googlers liked the idea of becoming a cloud provider, but was it the right time to enter the market? Google's advertising business was a large and growing cash cow. Executives within Google were not sure how much capital and effort should be allocated into an infrastructure business. When Google decided to go into the cloud business, Joe Bita was one of the engineers who helped lead the effort, and he joins the show as today's guest. Google's internal server infrastructure is managed by Borg, a system for allocating resources to applications. Google Cloud runs on Borg, just like every other application. And there were a number of early engineering challenges to building the necessary functionality into Borg for running a cloud provider on top of it. One example of a technical challenge that Google faced was the refactoring of Borg to run Google Cloud workloads. The requirements for public infrastructure are different than those of the internal Googler infrastructure. Inside of Google, developers deploy their applications to containers running on bare metal. Outside of Google, especially back in 2008 through 2014, developers wanted to create virtual machines. Borg needed to be refactored in order to instantiate VMs so that the customers of Google Cloud could set up those VMs on top of Borg infrastructure. Google solved this technical problem as well as many other challenges, and Google Cloud slowly gained momentum in the market. But AWS remained the default choice for profitable enterprise workloads. It wasn't until the container orchestration wars that Google found an opportunity to jump on a market segment that offered strong differentiation. By open-sourcing Kubernetes and presenting a clear vision for where the Kubernetes project was going, Google shifted the battlefield of the public cloud towards a competitive landscape where it has many advantages. Kubernetes also provided many other technology companies with an opportunity to get into the cloud market, creating a collaborative multi-company ecosystem that has accelerated the pace of software faster than anyone expected. Joe Bita has been instrumental in the evolution of the cloud-native ecosystem. In today's episode, Joe gives his memories on Google Cloud, Kubernetes, and his Kubernetes company Heptio, which he sold to VMware. A few announcements from the SE Daily universe. Find Collabs is the company that I'm building, and we're having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. If you're working on a project or you're looking for other programmers to build a project or start a company with, check out Find Collabs. We have a new Software Daily app for iOS. On that app, you can find all of our episodes, and you can search. You can find related links and topics. You can comment on them. You can communicate with other people, and you can become a paid subscriber if you want to get ad-free episodes. You can subscribe at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. You can download the app clicking on the link in the show notes. Now let's get on to today's show. 
Joe Bita, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me. So since we last spoke, you have been acquired, and I'd like to talk through some history and then talk through some company building lessons and then eventually get to the present and talk about present state of the ecosystem. But I want to start by discussing an early engineering problem within Google Cloud, which was that Google Borg runs containers on bare metal. Google Cloud runs on Google Borg, but cloud customers want to provision VMs. Why did cloud customers need to provision VMs? Well, you know, who am I to argue with customers? I think, you know, when when I started the GCE project, we were starting to do some infrastructure work and we started with storage because we're like storage is the center of any application. But the proof point out there was that, you know, we, we looked around, we looked at existing cloud companies like Amazon and, you know, clearly that was table stakes in this world. And I think, you know, both with respect to cloud, but also, you know, looking at the history of VMware, there is this sort of first stage of virtualization in cloud where, where you want to provide sort of like the platonic ideal of a computer. Right. And that really is what cloud like infrastructure cloud is. You want a computer that behaves in a idealized way. You want storage that is, you know, reminds you of physical abstractions, but is software driven and pluggable and has performance characteristics that are predictable. And so I think a lot of this is that, you know, it's just about comfort and process of being able to do the things that you did before, but being able to do those things in a more scalable, virtualized, software-driven way. So that was really the first stage of cloud. And I think as we saw the introduction of the first generation of platform as a service type offerings, as we saw sort of the more generalized sort of container as a service, that's really folks starting to explore the space of how do we actually start working with logical abstractions instead of physical abstractions. Does this also illustrate one of the hurdles that Google had to figuring out the cloud market was, you know, you look at the App Engine historically now and you're like, they did it right. They had it all (laughs) along. You know, why did we ignore Google? Why did we ignore App Engine early on? Why didn't App Engine gain traction? Well, I think, I mean, you know, there was always a little bit of tension between the, you know, the GCE team that I started and the App Engine team. Because the App Engine team, they did their thing first. It was based on a lot of the learnings from Borg with like really focused on how do you actually sort of remove all the distractions on focus on on just building your application. And so there was always a little bit of tension between these things. And I think, so I want to be respectful for them because I think, you know, the, the some of the folks who started App Engine really clear vision around, hey, we just want to like remove all the distractions, make this stuff easy. Why did App Engine, you know, not catch on like something like EC2? I think that's a really good question. In my mind, I think a big part of it is that users weren't ready for it. Another thing is that, you know, there was always sort of like one feature or one limit that would start biting people, right? So for the longest time, like the size of requests and responses in App Engine was capped at a certain size, right? Just because of based on the architecture. And over time, they increased that. But that was the type of thing that, you know, developers, they're like, well, I'm not going to hit that limit now, but I may hit that limit eventually. And so this idea of like, at some point, I'm going to actually get stuck and I won't have any choices. I think in some ways that actually prevented, you know, some uptake and some adoption of App Engine. One of the things that like when we built Compute Engine that I, I firmly believe is that even if a user wasn't using raw VMs, 
knowing that they're there makes an offering like App Engine that much more powerful, right? Because you know that, hey, if I get stuck, if I hit a limit, if there's something I can't do, I actually have a fallback plan, something that's comfortable. It's a security blanket type of thing. And I think that as we see the evolution of these things between, you know, infrastructure, containers, and sort of, you know, uh, function as a service, platform as a service type of offerings, I think we're seeing more sort of gradations along that spectrum from sort of super raw, you can do anything with it, to super opinionated and easy to use. And I think as we start seeing a more uniform path between these things, it actually brings more comfort for developers using the whole platform. Why do you think Heroku was able to take off when App Engine didn't get as much traction? App Engine pushed forward on a whole bunch of fronts. I think the biggest one was probably the data store. The App Engine data store was based on Bigtable. Proven technology, worked great inside of Google. A lot of good stuff to say about it. Heroku is like MySQL. And so it was something that was familiar. And so whereas the App Engine team had to build sort of database bindings for all the different various languages, Heroku, you know, number one, they had a Ruby runtime, which when Ruby was super hot, but they didn't have to actually create all their own ORMs and stuff like that for it because they could actually uplift from the rest of the community it was something that was familiar and it felt a lot more portable than I think the, the App Engine data store did. When you were getting the Google Cloud project off the ground, you had to convince the Borg team, I think, to give you VM support or you had to help implement it? Or how, how did that go? Yeah. How did you get, because again, you've got containers running on bare metal and you say, okay, actually we also want VMs to be able to run here. Yeah. So, I mean, early on when we were creating GCE, I wanted it as much as possible to run on sort of stock Borg inside of Google. And because I knew is that as we took this to production, the more specialized infrastructure that we were going to need, the harder it would be to justify and get this stuff up and ready and launched, right? And so both at the hardware and the software layer, you know, we're like, hey, we want to use as much core Google technology as possible to ease that transition into uh, production. But there was a whole bunch of stuff we had to build along the way. So we built a team to essentially take KVM and productionize that, doing all the security analysis that we needed along the way. That was a really big effort. We ended up building essentially a user mode hypervisor to pair with KVM. I think we were one of the first folks to actually start doing that. And then we had to actually figure out how do we use that inside a Borg. So we had a special Borg cell that we experimented with early on before we moved to production understanding sort of the different machine types that Google had. Originally, we were developing on AMD. And before we actually shipped, we switched to Intel, slightly different hypervisor, you know, VM assist instructions across those things. And then we had to build out our own network block device, our own virtual network, our own sort of, you know, API toolkit, command line client. So it's like there was a lot of heavy lift to do to actually sort of, you know, take the experience, a lot of this stuff and package it up so it was ready for the outside world. You know, I'm kind of realizing this now. Were you basically like the Andy Jassy of Google? I mean, I, I don't know the total arc of, of Andy's career and sort of like what exactly his involvement was early on. What I would say is that there, there were definitely a group of us in the Seattle office that said, we got to get into the infrastructure cloud game. And, you know, I think I, you know, a lot of times, like and I tell, you know, junior engineers this is that, Never underestimate people to do 
you know, impossible things when they don't know they're impossible, right? If I had known how much work getting GCE up and running was going to be at the time, I might not have actually done it. But I mean, there's a certain amount of like, you have to have a certain naivete to really take on hard problems. And I think there was a little bit of that early on with, with Google Cloud. You know, it's like I had a small team, I think it, you know, during the early parts of the project, we maybe had like 15, 20 people working on GCE. You know, obviously there's a heck of a lot more people working on it now, but, you know, I think there was a certain amount of like, Hey, I'm going to do this even if like the rest of the company doesn't get it yet. And that was definitely the early days of, of GCE. I mean, being up in Seattle helped also, you know, there's a certain amount of out of sight, out of mind because, you know, Google is very much, you know, all the decision-making for cloud these days now has moved down to Mountain View. They're very Mountain View centric. And it wasn't that way in the early days. We had a site director, Brian Bershad. We had support from Bill Corin, who has since left early on, left Google and, and went to Sequoia as an investor. But we had the right support structure so that we had a swim lane at, in Seattle where we could really experiment with this stuff. There's a perception that Amazon is, since it's built on a low margin business, that's part of why they were able to make AWS work is is because oh they you know they were they grounded out you know they were under resourced from the start and so they had to do everything minimally and so the economics were all minimal and they had you know so the customers got the great economics early on I'm a little like skeptical of that because it's like you look it's just economics like you can Google knows economics as well as anybody so but that said Google does have a fantastic money printing business model and. When you're starting something like Google Cloud as an adjacent business to Google, to some extent, you don't want to dump a ton of resources into it because then you're going to get the million man month, like problematic, over-engineered, over-resourced project. But I'm sure that you did get some resources. How did the management team or the business development team within Google treat you like how did and how did you treat them did you ask for infinite resources or did you just kind of go along scrappily and every week you're like can we get like thirty thousand dollars more one or two (laughs) engineers more so you know google's a funny company in that there's at least at the time when we were starting gce there's a heck of a lot of autonomy for teams to go off and do stuff and the rubber meets the road when you want to really ship Right when you want to actually scale up, when you want to actually start talking to developers, I mean to, to external customers, and so it's not impossible to carve off a team, carve off a limited set of of infrastructure, and really you know drive forward with that in isolation. I think you know, and if you can prove it out, then you can actually go ahead and ship it. Now I I don't know if that's changing. I've been I've been out of Google for five or six years now, but at the time I think there was definitely this sort of like you know, they give you enough rope to hang yourself type of thing. GC was very, very controversial at the time, cloud in general. You know, there were times early on in Google's history where there was a machine crust. They crunched, they couldn't build data centers fast enough. When they started introducing some of the live search stuff where it would actually show you search results as you were typing, that exploded the amount of resources necessary for search. And like, you know, and they had, you know, economists that would say like, but we know that that'll increase sort of the click-through rate and blah, you know, they could actually pencil it out, that type of thing. And so the general thinking, you know, inside of Google was, 
it's like, we can't build machines fast enough. We can't build data centers fast enough. If we get a new machine in a data center, do we want to sell it for parts, which is kind of how they viewed cloud? Or do we want to actually invent the next Gmail or invent the next Google Docs or the next, you know, ads or search innovation on top of it? And so that was sort of the mindset that we were fighting with cloud. It turns out that cloud is actually a pretty good margin business. And it's not just, I mean, it's across storage, compute, and network. Each of those things have some good margins built in. I mean, like, let's take S3 sort of object storage. People, to a general rule, never delete things, right? And they're never forced to make that hard decision that I should delete stuff. So it has the best you just, parts you just of mark sat- it as deleted. Well, I mean, like, and... I mean, they do actually go through and garbage collect, I'm sure, and delete things. But like as an end user, it's like it's so easy just to keep throwing stuff in there. The bill creeps up and it's like boiling the frog slowly type of thing. That's a great business to be in. Networking, right? Networking. It's like there's an arbitrage there because when you buy connectivity, when you buy peering, you buy it on a bandwidth basis, but then cloud sell it back to you on a per byte basis. Right. And so there's an arbitrage there where it's not an apples to apples comparison in terms of the economics. And so Wait, there's margin. Say, say that again? No. Okay. So, yeah. So if you go to like, let's say I go to like, you know, my local ISP, I buy like a gigabit fiber connection. Right. That's essentially what like clouds do. But it's like it's called peering network peering. You're buying a gigabit. Right. Which is, you know, a gazillion or whatever, like with a billion bits per per second. Right. But then Amazon or every cloud, they charge you on every byte that actually goes across that, right? And so there's a sort of time shifting type of type of thing going on there that is a great place for because when you to be able buy make- when you make the big purchase, you get an economies of scale discount, yeah, and then you get to sell it at the better, yeah, exactly, price. exactly. Wow. And then also things like the the reason why all the clouds offer free ingress is because number one, they want you to bring data into their cloud. And number two is that typical web serving workloads are incredibly asymmetric. The request is small, the response is big, right? And so you buy symmetric lines a gigabit each way, but the incoming connection is always underutilized compared to the outgoing connection. And so that's why they're able to give away free ingress as this stuff. And beyond that, even if it was break even or at a small loss, you could think of cloud as legion or the basics of cloud as legion for whatever your higher level services are, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, like any of these things, it's about an ecosystem. It's about a platform. It's also about economies of scale. I mean, like, you know, at some point, if you're going to run a data center, you have to be big enough that you, you know, can negotiate with your vendors, that you can actually have the expertise and amortize them out across enough infrastructure to actually pay the bills there, right? And so, you know, the size of the footprint of anybody running data centers professionally is just going up. And that's sort of like a, you know, that's a sort of a little bit of an arms race for economies of scale across clouds. The one other thing I want to say is that like Amazon is a logistics company. They know about supply chain, what the consumer demand is, how to forecast it, how to make sure that they can get the right product to the right person at the right time. And cloud to some degree is a logistics problem. If I buy a physical machine ahead of demand, every like CPU cycle that's not getting used is lost revenue. It's essentially inventory that's spoiling. It's like buying bananas in a grocery store. If you can't sell the bananas in time, they spoil. Same thing with machines, right? And so the efficiency of your supply chain, being able to deliver just in time and making sure that you don't have a lot of sort of inventory spoiling is a critical part of actually driving margins in cloud. And that's something that Amazon has a ton of experience with that I think makes them super successful. 
we're a little off topic here, but I think it's fascinating we're, we're, stuff. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. In retrospect, if we look backwards, and we'll get to the <laughs> VMware, we'll get to the modern Kubernetes ecosystem, but just you know, going historically, it's the five-year anniversary of Kubernetes. If we go back, Kubernetes looks like the perfect lever to get Google into the cloud business. But the way that I've heard you tell the story... Kubernetes was more of this happy accident. Which story is closer to the truth? Was it more of a happy accident, like a hack a day kind of thing? Or was it like, this is what we need to actually get the cloud to move in a way that is in sort of a jujitsu fashion, gets more providers into the business? It was very much the second one. I mean, like we, you know, to fund the Kubernetes team, to open source it, we very much had to make a business case for what we wanted to do and why we wanted to do it. You know, when you're coming late to a market, you got to change the rules. You can't play the same game as the leaders in that market. And Kubernetes was a bid to, you know, I like to say shake the snow globe to try and reset things so that, you know, so that Google was in a position to be able to, you know, start attracting customers on a, a level playing field. And so really it was about like, how do we actually, I mean, you know, start to change the way people deploy software such that we can actually break them away from their existing habits and patterns and establish an opportunity to start establishing some some market leadership. When you started Heptio, your vision for the company was to help, if I, if I understand the vision correctly, it was to help users deploy and operate Kubernetes in a cloud agnostic way. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that vision, but w- what was your strategy for implementing that? So yeah, I think I think your strategy summary is good. What I would say is that, you know, we always viewed Heptio not as a Kubernetes company, but as a cloud native company. And so if you look like the first blog posts I wrote on the Heptio blog was like defining what cloud native was, the different aspects of it and why it's important. And so we always saw, and I think the same thing when Craig created the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, we knew that Kubernetes was only a piece of the puzzle. It was, a, it was a critical sort of keystone piece, but it was only a piece of the puzzle. And it's really about delivering that business value that you realize through cloud native. And my quick definition that I've been practicing here is cloud is essentially running on systems managed by somebody else. And often the, the factors that I think define cloud is API driven, self-service and elastic. Right. Those are the things that for me define cloud. Cloud native is tools, techniques, teams, and organizations that are optimized to take the best advantage of that. Right. So cloud native is your mindset and the tools and the way that you build software that is complementary and takes advantage of cloud. And so Kubernetes is critical in that actually provides a cloud-like abstraction on top of any type of infrastructure. So it creates an opportunity for you to be cloud native, even if you're not running in the public cloud. And so that that was sort of the thing that we came at Heptio with, which is like, how can we start organizations, enterprises along their cloud native journey so they can actually realize the benefits of being a modern software shop? And how can we do it in a way where we decouple that moving to cloud with becoming cloud native? Because as a software engineer, if you try and do two things at once, your chance of failure increases dramatically. 
And so if you want to actually take advantage of this, being able to actually do it like next to your existing infrastructure, being able to ease yourself into it instead of trying to rip the Band-Aid off all at once is going to be a much more successful path towards modernizing your your development practices than just saying, hey, we're going to move to cloud. Let's just reinvent the world. Like that is often a recipe for frustration. As far as actually tactically implementing it, so what we're seeing in a... In a slightly more mature ecosystem that we have today, we see strategies from people like Linkerd, for example, where they kind of get an open source project going and they use that open source project to kind of generate a communication with the ecosystem. Like, hey, we've got this part of the ecosystem that we're solving and this gives us a forum where we can sort of eke out a piece of the ecosystem that we're going to have a really good core competency in, and maybe we can expand adjacently from there, and we can own that part. Or not own it, but we can have a really good core competency in that part. You see the same thing with Upbound, where they started with the Rook project. You know, like, we're going to go after the storage part of things. With Heptio, I think just time-wise, you were in kind of a different position because it was earlier But it also seemed like tactically you were going after, I mean, you did have some open source projects, but it seemed like you were more going for, let's just like have a a support model so that we can just help people even get to know what is going on. Because it's it's easy to forget, like relative to today, where there's just tons and tons of enterprises at KubeCon. Back in the early days, there were many fewer enterprises that were actually willing to get started. So it would have made sense to go more for the general support model. Yeah, I think one way to look at open source from a business point of view, and I think this is a little way cynical, is that in some ways it's a lead generation mechanism. If you can get a successful open source project that you're closely associated with, all of a sudden, you know, you have to worry about lead qualification. Is this somebody who actually I can build a business with and partner with, or is this somebody who's never going to pay me any money? Versus the general sort of startup thing is like, I need to actually get people to know who I am, right? And so I think, you know, some of the early stuff is like, how do you actually start the project, get users, and then use that to actually get yourself associated with it and start that engine running? Kubernetes was clearly already there. But one of the things that we looked at is is that you know the uptake cycles for technologies like kubernetes are different for different types of organizations and we started heptio when we did because we knew you know that it was going to take a lot longer for enterprises to actually get comfortable being ready to implement the technology than i think a lot of folks who are sort of embedded say in the valley the way that they approach things and what they look at and so a lot of our contemporaries that got funding in sort of the early sort of like super hypey days like they had struggles because they had a hard time finding those paying customers those enterprises because you know so much of being a startup is just a timing exercise The next thing that we realized is that, you know, product management 101 is that you are not your user, right? Like, and and I think this is, it's easy when you're building, say, you know, a, you know, a dating app to say like, well, maybe I'm a, you know, I'm not dating. So I have to do user research and actually understand my user versus me, right? But I think developers fall into this trap where they assume that all developers are the same. They're all interested in the same things. And so if I just build something I'm happy with, then the rest of the world will be happy with it too. But it turns out the development community is huge and varied and the needs of an enterprise and enterprise developers and enterprise operations organizations 
for like, you know, a financial services firm in New York is going to be vastly different from the needs of a startup that's, you know, south of Market Street in San Francisco. And so a big part of our early efforts was to establish dial tone relationships and understanding of our true target customers, which were the folks that were large enterprises that could actually sort of, you know, pay the bills and actually start getting real revenue for our company. And so we leaned into early with field engineering, support, and really just like getting in the trenches with these potential customers so that we could understand how they thought about the world, what the products that they needed were. And then you could see that actually influenced some of our open source projects. One of the first open source projects we did was a backup solution. So this is, it was as Heptio Arc, it got renamed to Valero as part of, of coming to VMware. And recently hit 1.0 during the conference, like you start talking to real customers and they're like, how do I back this stuff up? Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, nobody's solved that yet. I guess that's something you need to do in a production system. Again, that's not necessarily the intelligence in this sort of, you know, the sort of type of thing that you're going to get when you're talking to a small startup. Because they can cobble something together themselves, perhaps. But like you start talking to real enterprises and they're looking for real backup solutions that actually meet all their compliance needs. Totally different market, totally different set of needs. So we were mischaracterized early on as a support and services company because that's just like the first thing we did to really get to know our customer base. But one of the, our success in fundraising and, you know, part of the VMware ac- acquisition is that, you know, we were very much thinking about how do we take that knowledge? How do we take that experience? How do we take those relationships and pivot that into long-term products that were aimed at the right market at the right time? Were there any particular businesses you were taking inspiration from? Like Pivotal comes to mind. Pivotal seems like it has a pretty similar strategy, except they had a dedicated Cloud Foundry system rather than what you had? I think, you know, I hesitate to give too much strategy away here. I look up to, I think, you know, the best SaaS companies out there, they're a software tool, but also what they are is proven businesses processes that are rendered into software. When you think about Salesforce, when you think about, you know, good applicant tracking systems, good, like any of these things like Zendesk, you think about these things, what it is, is it's like, you want to do function X. If you adopt our software, we can actually give you good structure, good defaults for how you actually implement that function in your business. And so in some ways, those SaaS products become the operating system, the people operating system for the organization. And I think bringing some of that thinking to IT, to how software is built, how do we actually provide the tool set that actually marries this, you know, gift that we have around sort of a uniform set of infrastructure with what are the needs of organizations for how they actually want to map that to their organization, map to that to their team structure, map that to their business goals. And I think that's the piece that's missing. And that's what we are really focusing on. And I think that's something that VMware can bring a lot of value to because they have a lot of those pre-existing relationships. They understand the needs and the problems that these users face inside of very large, complex, varied organizations. So if you think about the Zendesk or Salesforce generation of technologies, they are closed source, they're hosted on a cloud somewhere, they're not hosted on your cloud, and your integration points are RESTful APIs, which is not bad, but it's not 
a deep integration. It's not deep integration with your, I don't know, your your RBAC policies or your IAM policies or whatever policy management system you have. I think GitLab is interesting to bring up here because GitLab illustrates maybe a conversion point to a world in which we want our software. It's not that we don't want to pay a provider, but we want our software to expose a wider array of integration points than the solutions of Cloud 1.0. I think that we're starting to see some really interesting new ways to think about and deploy SaaS and software. It's not as clean cut as like you run it on-prem, maybe with an appliance, either physical or virtual, or you buy a service that sits behind a REST API. We're starting to see gradations of these things and different topologies that come into play. And I think that there's trade-offs across these things. If you want a fully managed service, having it run, you know, someplace where you can't touch the actual underlying stuff is the best way, I think, to give a fully managed experience. But what it means is that some of the integrations, some of the interactions become less fluid because you actually have these sort of WAN links or, you know, APIs that are not quite as immediate feeling as having something sort of sitting on your network. And so we're starting to see sort of a mix of how, how people do these things. I think one of the interesting things is that you talk to a lot of companies and they'll talk about on-premises, but sometimes they actually would say, hey, if, you're, if I'm giving you software and you're running it in Amazon in your own VPC, they consider that on-premises, right? So I think there's this distinction that we're running where it's like, okay, do we actually go on-premises or are we talking about behind the firewall? And if you're behind the firewall, can you take an application and split it up such that some stuff runs behind the firewall, some stuff runs in a hosted management control plane? I think a great example would be, you know, there's CICD providers out there where the actual sort of CICD sort of management stuff runs hosted, but the actual build machines, the runners actually run behind the firewall. And so there are ways where you can start splitting the difference to try and have the best of both worlds for some of these things. But I think we're, you know, one of the things that I think is enabling this is Kubernetes because it does provide, we're starting to see sort of like what I call embedded Kubernetes, where it's somebody wants to sell a solution to somebody, they need a distributed base for it. They use Kubernetes, but it's an implementation detail of actually providing a larger set of software that's running behind the firewall. Is an example of that like GKE on-prem? Or OpenShift? I mean, well, I mean, the goal of GKE on-prem is to actually deliver like in Kubernetes, right? Kubernetes is the end result of something like that. I'm thinking about things like the folks who are enabling it would be uh, gravitational. They do some of this where it's essentially managing applications, running on Kubernetes behind the firewall. Replicated HQ is another company. Oh, oh okay. Right? So like if I want to deliver like a HashiCorp technology to, I'm thinking, I did a show with Replicated and they have, they integrate with HashiCorp. HashiCorp wants to have an on-prem distribution for their technology that is traditionally only available in the cloud. Replicated gives them a way to distribute it to Kubernetes clusters, at least. Yeah, and then there's different models for sort of how much of that is managed versus not managed versus semi-managed mm -hmm. versus like, do we actually make support easier by essentially automating some of this sort of like, let's grab some logs and upload. All that stuff is really starting to sort of play with where the line is between where does the firewall sit? Where does the application, how does it straddle the firewall? Those are super interesting things that we're starting to see evolve. Right, and, and one example of why that's useful is like, 
if you are using GKA on-prem, for example, then if you wanted to get regular updates to your Kubernetes cluster, if you're using GKE on-prem, then, I mean, Google is just talking to GKE on-prem and regularly updating it so that you don't have to think about that rather than, you know, the past in which perhaps you have to have some calendar event where you're like, okay, here's when we're going to update Kubernetes or here's when we're going to update to Java 7. Right. And part of it, and I think Google's very much still figuring this stuff out. GKE on-prem is still a very early product. You know, there are expectations that enterprises have about when do you do upgrades? How do you do upgrades? What's the schedule? Is this stuff super automatic? You know, how far back do you support stuff? What is the support contract on that? Like, I'll give you an example. Like if you configure RDS in Amazon, it'll automatically upgrade to the next version of MySQL for you or what have you. But you actually specify, well, here's my maintenance window that I'm doing. And they'll send you emails saying, hey, we're going to do an upgrade. You're going to see some downtime. And so there's essentially an API driven sort of like, you know, how do we actually sort of start slipping the clutch between old school ops thinking, which is if it ain't broke, don't fix it, to sort of developer thinking, which is I always want the latest and greatest, right? And that's the tension that plays out across so much sort of enterprises that they want the latest and greatest. They want to enable developers to move fast. But the traditional ops view of the world is like, you know, if I don't upgrade, nothing breaks. Right. I mean, there are people who, you know, they'll buy a piece of hardware, they'll buy software for that hardware, and they'll view those things as a unit. And the way that they upgrade their software is they actually do a hardware refresh cycle. Right. That is not unheard of in the enterprise world. In the sort of cloud way of thinking, that sounds crazy town. Right. But like in that case, it's sort of some of the way that people approach doing this stuff. You've been acquired by VMware. The technology industry has this reputation where acquisitions, you know, the reputation is that acquisitions have not gone well, but there's not actually a good scorecard where we can actually say if acquisitions have been net bad or net good for acquirers. Like YouTube and Instagram obviously were really good. Deus was probably a really good acquisition. You know, GitHub is probably going to be really a good acquisition. Why is there this public sentiment that acquisitions generally like don't work out? I think that there's, I mean, you didn't name all the examples where things don't work out because you don't want to embarrass anybody. I think that, you know, it's, it's a delicate dance to try and take, you know, part of doing a startup is you create a culture. And when you're trying to merge cultures, it ends up being a difficult, delicate thing to be able to do. And what I can say is that like VMware has a great track record integrating acquisitions and getting a lot of value out of them. I think Nicira being a great example really provided a lot for VMware and expanded their scope quite dramatically. Things have been great. I think, you know, there's always friction when you do this stuff. And I think part of it is recognizing how much of that friction is just temporary, like somebody move my cheese type of change that's natural. How much of it is ongoing just because there's different aspects of different organizations. I think a big part of going from a small company to a large company is actually helping your team work through that friction and being there for them and letting them actually deal with that. I think a lot of it comes down to the people, right? You have to make sure that that you can merge these cultures, that you can actually, you know, tell a story and actually, you know, really find a way to continue your original mission that people joined your startup and bet on you for within this larger context. And if you can actually prove that out, then I think that you can get past that hump and actually see a successful acquisition. 
you know, there's no easy answer to this stuff. I think part of it, though, is that you pay all that friction up front. But the benefit of actually being in a larger company is that you get more resources, you get a sales machine, you get this huge amount of support, but it takes time to activate that support. And so there's a lag time between you and you pay the price of actually being at a big company before you see the uplift of actually having that big company behind you. And so I think a big part of making the acquisition successful is actually helping to, you know, it's the care and feeding of your team as you actually, you know, start to go through that sort of low point to the like, oh, I see the benefit and the uplift that we're getting from being part of this. When I think about the other potential acquirers that could have made bids for you, VMware makes a particularly large amount of sense because VMware has this gigantic customer base of people who have VMware installations. Those are probably going to be people that are going to want a quote-unquote Kubernetes strategy over the next N years. You focus deeply on the support issues and you have a great sense for what frictions are going to be encountered. You can bring that to VMware and scale it up So it seems like it makes a whole lot of sense. What's your strategy for kind of taking Heptio? And it seems like you basically need to take Heptio and then magnify what you have in order to, you know, because what you were saying, you started with a bunch of support people and field engineers. You probably need to 100x that to help VMware customers make the Kubernetes transition. So number one, we're hiring. (laughs) So send your resumes my way. You know, you're right. I think it's a challenge to take this thing, scale it up while maintaining that sense of purpose around what we're doing and the mission that we're on. It's something that we are concentrating on. What I can say is that we have a ton of support up and down the stack at VMware. I think a big part of it is that, you know, any time... And we see this when any enterprise looks to like, you know, when we talk to sort of like, you know, any sort of traditional enterprise, there are people within that enterprise that are forward looking, that get it, that are chomping at the bit to use this new technology and get involved in this stuff. And a big part of making that stuff successful is like recognizing and activating those people and giving them the support they need to essentially scale out. So a big part of what we need to do is like, like, like Heptio is bringing in expertise, but there's a boatload of expertise already at VMware. It's just kind of diffused through the company, right? And so one of the things that we can do is be a bit of a catalyst to, to essentially activate those people, start to bring them together and actually have that start to spread around out across the organization. And so, yeah, so I think there's a, there was a lot of that already latently within VMware. We just need to activate it. And we're hiring. So, I mean, we also need to grow. So there's that also. All right. Getting to contemporary Kubernetes engineering questions, I've heard you describe your vision for the near future of the Kubernetes ecosystem as exploded platform as a service. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, you should ask some of the Knative folks. (laughs) I I think that it's a great example of this stuff. We talked about App Engine earlier on. When I was at Google... You know, me and I'm sure other folks sort of made the point also. I looked at App Engine. I'm like, there's a lot of great stuff here. This is awesome. But how do we actually turn this from a framework into a toolkit? 
right? How we turn this into like, how can we actually create it so that you can get the full meal deal that is App Engine, but if something doesn't work for you, you can actually start sort of replacing items a la carte. You can do like full meal deal or a la carte and create a certain amount of that, you know, different sort of, you know, stops along that spectrum that makes sense. And so when you look at something like Knative, or if you look at the modern sort of serverless movement, a lot of it is like, let's take all the component parts of PaaS. Let's actually offer those as independent services, and then we'll actually reconstruct it from those particular parts. And it's, it's make no mistake, like there's a lot of folks that are working on Knative that actually also worked on App Engine. A lot of them I worked with when I was at Google. And so that I think is the transition that we're seeing now. It's sort of a reinvention of PaaS as being an experience through a toolkit versus being an experience that stands on its own. Why does Knative stand out to you as a well-engineered building block of that area of the stack when there are so many other open source function as a service models? So I think that, you know, the function is a, so, so first of all, Knative is more than just function as a service. It's a build pipeline. It's an eventing system and you can use it. And then it's a, you know, it's a deployment mechanism that supports scale from zero, right? So these are all different aspects of what it takes to automatically create a seamless experience to go from like code to serving, but they've broken those out. If you don't want to use the Knative builds, you can use that zero to one scaling with your old Jenkins setup, right? Like you can start picking and choosing these things as you want. And so I like the fact that it's factored into components that can actually live and work on their own. The second thing that I think is exciting about Knative is that it is natively integrated with Kubernetes. They use the extension mechanisms with CRD, which means that you get all the benefits of authorization, authentication, auditing, you know, the tool set with things like cube control. Like Kubernetes was like, you know, this is one of the things that at the keynote this morning, Brian Lyles was hitting on was that Kubernetes is a platform for building platforms. And this is, this is something that I think a lot of folks have been talking about for quite a while. It's fundamentally an extensible thing. And so seeing things that really embrace that extensibility, it was really great for me to see. Now, there are other sort of function as a service type of solutions that do that, but there's also a lot of them that are a relatively sort of thick layer on top of Kubernetes where everything runs in one namespace and they have their own user model. And you're like, okay, it's great that it's using Kubernetes, but it's not actually creating that sort of like like spectrum of services that you can take advantage of or not. Another popular abstraction that is going from, I guess, pre-popular consumption to actual usage is service mesh. Tell me your perspective for how the service mesh ecosystem has unfolded. So I think that the problems that service mesh solves are critical problems to solve. There are real needs there. I don't think we've seen the full story for how we approach implementing service mesh in a way like the things that I like about Knative, where you can actually, there's a little bit of sort of pick and choose here. We haven't seen a service mesh that brings that same sort of sensibility, at least in my mind. I'm hopeful though. One of the things like if you were to ask me last week, you know, what are the things that define a service mesh? What are the benefits? The things I would say would be essentially authentication, mutual TLS, authorization, that stuff dynamic routing, essentially a more flexible sort of service discovery routing type of thing. And then metrics, essentially a way to actually get data out of this stuff. Those are the big things. And like, and I think different people come at service mesh with different things in mind. 
the SMI stuff that was announced this week. Service mesh interface. The service mesh interface, which is essentially a bunch of sort of more abstract ways of looking at service mesh, a way to essentially sort of like meta service mesh. If you look at the set of resources there, it's actually broken out across those three different things. And so I think I'm not the only one that's seen that those are the value adds. And I like the idea that that service mesh interface is looking at those things as decoupled things versus one big sort of monolithic glob. That being said, I also think that, you know, Kubernetes happened slow and then it happened fast. There was enough time for it to sort of bake get some maturity for people to recognize that they needed that solution. I think service mesh was, you know, and then, and then by the time there was so much excitement around Kubernetes, everybody's like, Hey, let's replicate that type of excitement, but in this other area. And so I think there's been examples and I don't want to, to throw shade here, but there's been examples where folks have taken a relatively new raw thing and tried to essentially like supercharge it to try and get it to sort of Kubernetes success. Fake it till you make it. Well, I, I mean, not fake it, but like essentially like talk it up, try and sort of like supercharge the the community and force it to go faster than it otherwise naturally would. And I think we're seeing that what you end up with is that you end up with end users who are like, well, I need this thing because it's the latest and greatest. But then when you actually look at the technology, when you look at the complications of running that, when you look at their actual needs, it may be that, hey, you know what, get comfortable with Kubernetes as it is, and then add the service mesh as you start finding that you really need to solve those problems versus, you know, I think we've seen users that are like, I need it all at once, right? And I think that that can oftentimes lead to, you know, frustration, lead to folks getting disenchanted with the with the area and the technology as a whole. Yeah, there's a delicate balance between putting something out there with a nascent technology plus a vision versus putting out vaporware that doesn't really work even close to what is advertised. And there's a gradient between those two. I mean, it's not either or. I think there's a lot of these projects, it's like they're putting out stuff that works, the bones are there. It's a good, solid foundation to build a community around. But they're trying to be like, and you can run it in production now. And it's like, look, you know, there's like, it takes time for this stuff to bake. And like one of the things that we did with Kubernetes is that we put it out there early you know, and if you look at the Kubernetes of five years ago versus the Kubernetes of day, I don't know if there's any code that's left between the two, right? It takes time for that stuff to mature. But if you do it in the right way, you end up with like all the folks involved feeling like they have ownership over it. And I think that growing that like group ownership, growing that community ownership is not something that you can force a timetable on. Yeah. Like I think another good example of this is Kubeflow, where I interviewed David, who worked on Kubeflow when he was at Google and now he's at Microsoft. And he was very much like, look, I, this thing is like really young. There was like, you know, for a long time, there was like half an engineer at Google working on it. Now it's got a few more resources. We need a lot of work. And I was like, yes, that is a recipe for long-term success. Is that it? It takes patience to actually like, you know, low and slow cook things, right? You know, and... I think, you know, on the business side, oftentimes it's it's difficult to have that patience. And I think that's part of, and from a startup strategy, like we were talking earlier about how like a lot of startups try and start an open source project and use that to sort of bootstrap what they've been doing and use Linkerd as an example there. 
you know, it's a long haul to go from zero to successful open source to, you know, something that actually starts to have a life of its own that you can actually start to to see some dividends from. And I think a lot of companies don't recognize what a long haul that's going to be. A lot of investors don't either. And so I think, you know, as startups look for investors, there's some investors that know that, hey, this is a longer, longer term investment versus like they want to see an overnight success. I think, you know, Docker kind of spoiled it. Well, I mean, Docker even wasn't an overnight success. It was Doc Cloud for God knows how long before right. Docker was a thing, right? So I think that, you know, you got to align the business expectations with the reality of building community. I did a show with somebody from Microsoft and we talked a bit about the service mesh interface. He drew historical parallels to the container networking interface, the container storage interface. I don't know, maybe there's some other examples of XX interface. And I don't know enough about Kubernetes internals to know much about this kind of pattern in the Kubernetes ecosystem of when we have competing standards or when we have a lot of players, we like define this interface and then kind of there's like a governance mechanism perhaps around defining that interface or adopting that interface or something. Can you tell me, give me a brief history of developing these interfaces in Kubernetes? Like what role does governance play there or like just how these things come to pass or how they get adopted and what effect they have on the ecosystem? I mean, it's hard, you know, to some degree, those who show up get a say which is one of the inducements for folks to actually join the community. But also as they join the community, if they just show up and they just want to push their own stuff, you know, the organ will be rejected. I think there's some examples here. Ingress is one example, which is essentially a sort of generic interface over L7 load balancers. It was done very early on before we had a lot of the extension mechanisms that we use today. It stalled out, right? Like I think only today, Tim Hawken is helping as part of SIG Network to sort of boot up some thinking in terms of how do we move Ingress forward, taking some of the ideas that Dave Cheney's been working with, with a project that we started out at Heptio called Contour. So there's some thinking in terms of how- Sorry, to, did you say it stalled out? Yeah. For the longest time we did Ingress and then it didn't change. And there's there's problems with it. There's places where it's underdefined, mm. where it doesn't meet users' needs, but there wasn't enough energy from anybody to really sort of get together and start having the discussions to actually move it forward. And so we're picking that up again and moving that forward. Even though it stalled out, it still brought a lot of value. Ingress is, I think, a useful thing in the Kubernetes community, but I think we definitely want to see it move forward. And it starts to blur into the lines of the service mesh interface and stuff like that. So there's going to be some interesting discussions moving forward with that. I think that another place is cloud provider. So Kubernetes can do things like configure your ELBs for you or auto attach, you know, block devices, network block devices for you. It can do that stuff for you. And to do that, we have essentially these things called cloud providers. And so there's a standard interface inside of Google for how do you represent what a load balancer is versus this. But if you know, like Amazon has three different types of load balancers. And so we have mechanisms where you can, you know, take a Kubernetes service object, put an annotation on it that gets sort of passed down to the cloud provider. And the cloud provider is like, oh, you want an NLB instead of a classic ELB. Let me go ahead and configure that. Right. And so these abstractions just by definition are going to be leaky. And so I think we're still struggling with like, how do we define what's common? How do we provide the mechanisms for these things to be leaky? And how do we do that in a way where you know, users can share some knowledge, some code, some skills between these different, and it's an art. It's very difficult to do right. How do you do diplomacy though? Who breaks ties? You know, you, you hug it out. I mean, like, I think there's, it's just, again, that's like the folks who show up get a say, 
And for anything in open source, you build reputation and influence over time. And if you are too much vendory about sort of pushing your company's thing over other things, that's a great way to lose influence, right? And so a big part of the sort of the influence and respect in the Kubernetes community is very clearly being able to separate out like what is good for the project, what is good for the user versus what is good for my company. And it's an art to figure out how do you actually do this balance of like, I want to do the right thing for the project, right thing for the user, but then I also want to be able to actually create opportunities for my company and at least create a level playing field for other players in the I mean, this is standards bodies anywhere, right? But I think one of the good things is that because the folks who show up and write code are the ones who actually sort of accrue this influence, there's at least a little bit of a forcing function that you don't see when it's just people arguing over a document that a lot of standards bodies end up being. It's interesting because I never paid attention in government class. Like I took- Oh, it is government. It's, it's, oh, it's all government. But the thing is, like, I was always so bored in government class because I was like, I don't want to learn anything about this, like- you know, rigorous process, but then you start to see like the Kubernetes ecosystem or Kubernetes people hate it when I say this, the cryptocurrency ecosystems, like they have serious governance issues and and they vary based on the incentives of the coins or in our political system, our American political system right now, we are like getting a masterclass in how complicated and ill-defined our government is. But yeah, I mean, I get, I don't know, it's, it's so, kind of cool to see it in, in action. Yeah. So early on with Kubernetes, it was a bunch of engineers that had a shared vision that just started hacking on code. And the decision making was very fluid because there was enough shared vision. Over time, as the project grew, it was clear that that's sort of like, you know, hey, everybody sort of has the same idea. Let's just get along and do stuff was not going to stand the test of time. But then we had the problem of like, okay, we need some governance, but we don't have any governance. How do you bootstrap governance from zero? And it really does echo a lot of this sort of historical, like constitutional Congress type of thing, where you have to have a bunch of people that are like, I think I have enough respect in the community that I can get together and at least put a straw man out there and see if I can get enough people to agree. And hopefully there won't be a revolt. And like, we can actually sort of build trust, bootstrap trust from zero to be able to do that. And we had to go through that. So we actually had a bunch of folks who essentially self-appointed themselves in the project to say, let's bootstrap government is based on influence governance. We got in a room and, you know, this is probably like, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, we got in a room, did some face-to-face meetings, hashed out what does the governance model for Kubernetes look like? And out of that came the steering committee. And we held elections and part of the elections was like, well, who gets to vote? What is the criteria there? Who gets to be nominated? How many people on the steering committee? Like all these things were very much like, how do we bootstrap from zero to something that's ongoing and actually trusted? Huge echoes. It was it was the weirdest thing because it really felt like a constitutional Congress type of thing. Hmm. Let's begin to wrap up. Again, Congratulations on the acquisition. I like entrepreneurship stories. Like, I mean, my podcast, it's it's a business and I really enjoy building businesses. I really enjoy watching people succeed in businesses and covering this space as it has developed has been just an intriguing story about how to build businesses because there are so many business models in this space the market is going up and to the right. And so a lot of even weird or very niche strategies are working out for people because there's just like such a nascent market. What 
advice do you have for someone building a company in the cloud native space? Oh, in the cloud native space? I mean, a couple of things. I think number one, be thoughtful for any company, be thoughtful about your culture. Like, you know, you, you have to design your company from the get-go and you're going to end up with something. And as you grow, before you know it, it's going to be that much more difficult to change it. And so just like we talk about technical debt, I think there's an idea of cultural debt. If you get the wrong people in, if you get people who, if you establish the wrong set of behaviors, the larger you grow, the longer you let that fester, the more inertia there is to be able to change that. And so, you know, make sure that you take that stuff seriously from the start. In the cloud native space, I think the biggest piece of advice I would have would be understand your users. So the whole sort of early on with Heptio, we recognized that that our customers were not us, right? Uh, my experience of being an engineer at Google for 10 years does not prepare me to really understand what the life of an enterprise Java developer at a bank in New York is, right? That's a different experience for that developer than, than what I've lived. Different language, different motivations, different structure. But then beyond that, understand the difference between your user and your buyer, a lot of times when you're dealing with enterprises, which is, is where the money is generally in this world, the people who are using your product are looking for one thing and the people who can actually write the checks might be looking for something else. And so I think part of our strategy in this is as we build our open source projects, as we actually continue to invest, even when we were tiny at Heptio in upstream Kubernetes, was really about building a critical mass with the user, with the developer, staying credible there, but then also being credible as we actually started talking to the buyer, the decision makers within the company. And so you have to attack from both directions there when you're actually, these days when you're actually doing enterprise. I think old enterprise could be just like, you know, go direct to the top, you know, enterprise sales, long sales cycles, who cares what the users think. But in the world with cloud, when users actually line a business and developers actually have a lot more influence now than they ever did before, you have to make sure that you have a balance between those two constituencies. Last question. A lot of companies are trying to figure out how to shift resources towards open source. So whether you're an infrastructure company like VMware and it actually makes a lot of sense for sure to devote resources to open source software or you're perhaps an insurance company and you know you're going to need to deploy a lot of kubernetes related stuff maybe you've got thousands of engineers or like intuit i talked to intuit recently intuit invests a lot into open source software into experimentation What's your general rubric for how a company should invest in open source software developments? I'm going to like say, I don't really know on this. I think that there is a community of open source program offices. That's really a discipline, especially with larger companies. And I, I know the Linux Foundation, and I think, you know, asking somebody like Jim Zemlin, he can point you to resources mm -hmm. here. They, I know the LF is looking to be like, how can we start to actually provide the business case, the resources, the playbooks for establishing an open source program office? And so I think that there's really, it's, it's a fascinating sort of organizational design thing of yeah. how do you actually start start bootstrapping that type of thinking with Like what you're saying with Uber or LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook, they've all got open source 
like departments now. Yeah. And I think you got to understand what are your goals out of doing this, right? I think some companies, they want to actually like understand the technologies that they're betting on as a way to actually sort of long-term risk mitigation. Other companies, they do it because they want to show, hey, look, we're working on cool technology and it's a recruiting tool. Other companies are like, you know, they want to do the hard work and it's, this is a hard risky thing of like establishing a community so that you can get that flywheel running and actually start benefiting from other people contributing to. These are all like different reasons why folks go ahead and do open source. And I think, you know, I guess my piece of advice would be be clear about sort of like, what are the benefits that you're looking to get out of it? Because if you do stuff just out of pure altruism, like, you know, oftentimes that's not going to be sustainable. It'll be fickle, right? If you can also make the business case and actually connect the dots to the business, I think you're going to be the most successful. Now, it may take a certain level of long-term thinking. So it's not going to be like, hey, this is going to pay off in two quarters. You know, things like building a reputation, risk mitigation, those things are are long-term thinking. And then the last thought here is that, you know, Open sourcing projects, it's a long-term commitment when you do it right. I think, you know, there's been a theme at KubeCon here around sort of maintainer burnout for folks who are maintainers for open source projects. And the same thing can happen organizationally, right? So there's like, you know, we talk about like free as in beer for free software, free as in speech as open source. And then there's the joke of like free as in puppy, right? Like it's like, <laughs> it's like something that you're going to have to like, <laughs> uh, like take yeah. care of. And oh, it's yeah. like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it can be a burden if you're not, if you're not clear about what you're actually getting mm. out of it. Joe Bita, thanks for coming back on. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow. 